today on Ag News Daily. The mobile device is just tracking your daily operations. So it's almost gamified, icons associated. So we go to the field, and when I do an operation, I just submit what field I went to, what machine I took, what attachment. Maybe I'm spraying or planting. Good Tuesday morning, listeners. Welcome to the Ag News Daily Podcast. This is Tanner Winterhoff alongside Delaney Howell. Today's podcast is brought to you by Grasshopper Mowers. With Grasshopper Mowers, nothing gets in the way of hashtag mow day. Delaney, how are we doing this morning? I'm good, Tanner. How about you? I'm not too bad. We got more rain overnight. Uh, it kind of brewed up. These high temps we're beating, uh, experiencing here in central Iowa really pushed through a nice lightning show last night. Yes, it certainly did. About the time I was going to bed last night, it started thundering and lightning, and I thought, oh, no, there will be no planting today. No planting today here in central Iowa. And that's kind of what it looks like through Iowa and Illinois. I'm sure you have already done a lot of homework on the planting progress report, but the USDA shows planting off to its slowest start in nine years with only 22% of the nation's corn planted As of Sunday, May 8th, the USDA says that that 28% is behind the five-year average and 42 points slower than last year's pace. So that's not good progress, Delaney. No, it certainly isn't, Tanner. And soybeans and wheat were the same story. Most notably, spring wheat is on its slowest start to date since 2011, with just 27% of the entire U.S. spring wheat crop planted. But yeah, the big story here is that most uh, commodities are well behind their five-year average. 12% finished on the soybean side of things. But I think it's also worth mentioning, Tanner, that we did see big jumps compared to where we were at last week. So even though we're well behind the five-year average, we are seeing folks, when they have those planting windows, get a lot planted. Yeah, it looked like corn took an eight-point jump last week, which I guess in in relative terms, that is big, especially for the areas that we thought were going to uh, struggle to get some crops in. So it'll be interesting to see what this week brings. But when you look at the state-by-state comparison, definitely Iowa and Illinois are the furthest behind, but it's not too much further behind. You look at Minnesota, Indiana, and Missouri. So quite a bit of that corn belt is is trailing progress and trying to get their corn and soybeans in the ground. Yeah, no doubt, Tanner. And I'm going to switch tracks here to talk about an issue that we really haven't talked about a whole lot on the podcast for quite some time because we've been focused elsewhere. But U.S.-China relations are going to have a review process, according to U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. Now, this piece of news is a few days old, and I'm not sure how we missed it, Tanner. While I was in D.C., I should have been on top of it. But last Thursday, she said that her agency is going to have a review of the punitive tariffs on Chinese goods that were imposed under Section 301 under the Trump administration. And if you'll think back, Tanner, to a couple of years ago now, uh, there were really two parts to the phase one trade agreement with different requirements as far as the number of dollars that China was going to be committed to. About $34 billion in one batch, $16 billion in another, and I believe $36 billion in the last batch. 
And so she said that they have issued an official federal register notice, which allows them to conduct a statutory four-year review of these Section 301 tariffs. Now, when asked what she's going to do after this review, she said she didn't really give an answer, but she did say it's important to focus on the long-term strategy Indicating to me, Tanner, that perhaps we won't see any sort of, I suppose, uh, response to China's potential lack of, you know, meeting good on these phase one agreements. Yeah, it it would be an interesting move to try and punish your largest trade partner. We all know what type of repercussions that might have in place, but it's probably just going to become a headline or newsworthy piece to notify people that we are are potentially behind or not on the fair side of things. Yeah. And the other thing she cited was just the fact that with Russia and Ukraine and India and all of these other countries having potential food issues, China is going to have to come to the buying table. So in her mind, she said, let's focus long-term here and give them kind of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And sticking on the China theme, China's soybean imports are up in April, and they climbed from a month ago. This was mainly due to the arrival of cargo that's been delayed. So both weather, COVID, and slow harvests in South America uh, were causing the delay of those shipments. So the world's top soybean importer brought in 8.08 million tons of the oil seed in April, up 27% from March. And those figures are pretty close to the same as last year at 7.45. So a little bit up, you know, they continued to talk about the delayed Brazilian soybean harvest, but uh, they're predicting that imports may climb again in May. So uh, it will be interesting to see the projection right now is another 9.4 million tons. So just like you're saying, you know, China is already coming to the world's table. A lot of these soybeans are coming from Brazil currently due to their uh, timing of crop production. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what type of U.S. crops China steps in. But let's pause here real quick for a quick message from Grasshopper Mowers. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On Mow Day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there on that Grasshopper Mower... You don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mow Day and Grasshopper Mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. Well, Tanner, as we continue to talk about food production worldwide, you know, we've been talking a lot about India and their announcement of a reduction in exports, but they've also now suggested that they'll have a reduction of imports altogether on edible oils and edible bean oils. This is the third year in a row that India is expected to decrease exports from the global market because they are... I suppose, uh, going to be able to produce more domestically for the third year running. Of course, this does come on the heels of the announcement that they will be significantly reducing their global exports, but edible oil consumption in India has had some difficulties over the past couple of decades as we've seen a growing population, growing income amongst their middle class. But all in all, the country's edible oil imports have surged to about 15 million tons compared to just 4 million tons two decades ago. So 
They said this current marketing year, the government has lifted restrictions, but record high prices are dampening consumption as well as an increase in in domestic production. So it could be interesting to see how they kind of weave their way through that one. And I'm a little bit mixed on the headline here. I'm not really quite sure I fully grasp uh, the brevity of this. Right. And and perspective is is key. You just mentioned two to four million in an annual basis. And we just discussed, obviously, oil versus soybeans, where China did seven to nine million in a month. So not not to discredit any factor in the market, but it is interesting seeing a country being able to turn to potentially producing more crops that would be able to create their edible food oil themselves rather than rely on the market. But I tell you what, we as consumers really don't have a lot of choice when it comes to our meat prices at the counter. Tyson raised their annual forecast for the year because meat prices are soaring. So what a great time to release this headline right in the middle of a federal investigation. But uh, if you go all the way down to the bottom of this article, it says uh, consumers are more elastic than we had anticipated. So they were anticipating that we as consumers would buy less meat, even though prices were soaring and inflation continued to rise, but they have experienced higher than projected company sales for the first quarter. So uh, as it states here, their full sales outlook Monday was is now soaring above the original revenue projection. Globally, food prices hit a record high in March due to the war in Ukraine as it has disrupted grains used for feed. Kind of an interesting uh, reason, putting it all on Ukraine, nothing to do with inflation. Rising beef prices are pushing consumers to buy cheaper cuts, even though meat even though meat demand still stays strong, says Tyson Chief Executive Donnie King. So supply chain and consumer are more inelastic than what we had modeled in, as he says to reporters. Well, actually, I have a little bit of a contradicting story to that, Tanner. This was reported by Drovers late last week, but it was an online survey of 24,000 adults done by Ipsos Global Advisor. And I pulled up their website. It looks like they do a lot of different polling and uh, consumer research, not only just domestically, but also worldwide. And they said that of these 24,000 adults that were surveyed, two-thirds of adults globally say they're concerned about climate change, and most say they chose to eat beef burgers over plant-based burger varieties, even when alternative protein is presented as more eco-friendly. That's globally. But then when you turn your attention to some specific countries, that's where we start to see things shift a little bit, Tanner. Um Countries that are more likely to eat plant-based meats include folks like Japan and Canada, who said they're more climate-conscious, followed by France, Poland, and uh, then finally the United States is kind of last on their list there. So United States continues to support U.S. beef production. Other countries, however, are turning to what they think are better alternatives for the environment. So some of those alternative plant-based proteins. That's interesting. I wonder what the price hike is on plant-based protein right now, because average mm-hmm. prices for Tyson's beef climbed just shy of 24%. Their chicken prices jumped just shy of 15% and pork rose just shy of 11%. So that would be interesting to see if the plant-based protein market is also climbing. 
That would be interesting. I haven't looked a whole lot on it, to be honest. So I don't have a lot of extra news, Delaney. So why don't we pause here quick for a message from Grasshopper Motors. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On Mo Day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there, on that grasshopper mower, you don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mo Day and Grasshopper Mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. The last piece that I have to just discuss a little bit here, Delaney, is uh, we had our conversation with Naomi yesterday and markets, the grains were down across the board, but it potentially looks like soybeans and other future grain futures have rose overnight. So um, as stated, probably reacting to that planting progress report. But before we jump into the markets, did you have any other news today? I sure didn't, Tanner. And you're right. We certainly had a little bit of excitement in the overnights here, clawing our way back to positive territory after yesterday's market reports. We're about five cents higher um, in soybeans, five to eight cents higher in soybeans, about three to four cents higher in corn. Wheat is much higher on the day as well, putting anywhere to eight to 15 cents on the board. And in the protein markets, we're experiencing mixed trade in the overnight here as Live cattle and feeder cattle are higher. Lean hogs are lower heading into the opening session, Tanner. There you go. It uh, will be an interesting week to see things play out as we have the WASDI report come out on Thursday. It certainly will. We'll be sure to talk about that on Thursday when that comes out. Let's turn it over to our Tech Tuesday conversation today, Tanner, with Simple Farms. Well, good morning, everybody. We are here with Scott Scheimer, CEO of Simple Farms, which, as I understand it, is an app for farmers. Is that correct, Scott? That is correct. It's a uh, program that they can track their daily operations on their cell phone, them or their, their operators on the farm, and submit it. And it goes to a web-based portion of the program that helps us and anybody else using the program figure out exactly what our cost of production is at all times instantaneously. So uh, it gets down to as tight of details as actually including your living expense, your depreciation, interest expense. It was just a way for me on my own farm to figure out exactly where we need to be marketing our corn or our wheat, Milo, and uh, down to the penny. And Scott, I saw on the Simple Farms website that this was an app created by a farmer for a farmer. So I'm assuming you must farm. I do. Uh, It was my grandfather's operation. And unfortunately, he passed away in 91. I was 19 years old, going to school at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. And uh, I went ahead and wrapped up my degree in business and economics. But uh, when I came back, I started running the farm. And uh, right then, uh, playing with spreadsheets, I was trying to figure out how to figure out my own break even. And uh, through the years, doing spreadsheets and everything for my own farm, It got me to this point of actually developing a program. But yeah, we farm here in eastern Colorado, right on the border of Kansas, and uh, extremely dry conditions. (laughs) We are uh, wheat, corn, milo, millet, uh, playing a little bit with soybeans on our irrigation. So yeah, I'm a farmer as well. 
So do you have any background in coding or anything that helped you to develop this app or was that kind of self-taught? No, absolutely not. I didn't actually develop it. I designed it, created the platform we wanted, and then seek the development team who I actually picked up in Denver, Colorado, and they did the programming. So Scott, I'm curious, as you were developing this app, as you mentioned, you obviously farm, so that definitely helped you create some intel, so to speak, on understanding what farmers need and use from a day-to-day perspective. But as you were going through the app, I've worked in technology. I understand that apps take a lot of time, a lot of different iterations, and folks usually share their feedback with you if they feel it has something missing or needs to be tweaked. What kind of farmer feedback did you get as you were launching this thing? And you said about four years ago, was that correct? That's correct, Melanie. Um, and we got a late launch, so we didn't actually get the program out there till about February or March. And uh, so we had a real short period of time to get any kind of traction before farmers were back in the field and uh, not really interested in having a conversation with us. So the first year was slow getting it out there. And of course, then the next year, we just got going at trade shows and we ran into COVID. So we've kind of had a rocky road, but the ones that we have had sign up, uh, their input has been tremendous. That's probably our biggest thing we tout is uh, we're listening to all our users and whatever input they can give us, we're putting into updates. We actually just are pushing right now our 10th version of the updates. Just cleaning it up, making it simpler, easier to use. Um, a lot of my perspective came from, obviously, quite a few years of farming and conversations with my peers. I also, I guess I call it midlife crisis. There was a point I wanted to use my degree, and there was a position open here at Cargill as a grain marketer. So I took that on, and that really gave me a lot of perspective in traveling around, meeting with producers. And finding a great deal of my peers had no method at all of figuring out what their cost of production was. It was a uh, throw in the dart. And as you know, it's just so many factors involved with what we're doing and trying to keep all that together and analyze it in a quick manner is almost impossible. Yeah, I would definitely say that this is a lot more efficient than the millions of spreadsheets I've seen farmers have on clipboards in their tractor over the years. That is correct. And I was that guy. I was just trying to find a way to really simplify it. Uh, And I bought a lot of the programs that exist out there, tried them, and uh, they weren't designed by producers. They were designed by text. And uh, it made it very difficult because they didn't grasp exactly what we were all looking for. There were a lot of redundancies, a lot of things that just didn't need to be in there in those existing programs. I think a neat thing with my development team was When I was seeking a development team, I decided not to have one that had any knowledge of agriculture, and that was probably the best decision, because I had to dummy down teaching agriculture, and they had to dummy down teaching me tech, and together we really simplified the program back down to Ag 101, and I think that was a great place to start with this platform. So, Scott, we've talked a lot about high-level things, how you got it started, why you started it, but let's talk a little bit more about the app itself. If I were a producer logging in, if we wanted to use this for our farm, for example, what kind of data am I putting into this app and how does that work? Okay, Delaney. So it's it's two platforms. Uh, The mobile device is just tracking your daily operations. So it's almost gamified, icons associated. 
So we go to the field and when I do an operation, I just submit what field I went to, what machine I took, what attachment, maybe I'm spraying or planting, what inputs as far as seed, fertilizer. All that is set up on the web-based version of the computer. So when people pick us up, they log into simplefarms.ag, enter their email, their password, and their individualized farm is built on the computer on the web-based. And you go in and you set up your farm, your fields. You give your fields their nicknames plus their legal name and uh, their acreage. Right now, you associate an icon to that. Um, we are actually looking to Google Earth to start putting it in where you'll actually look at the map that way. Then you set up all your products, your machinery, you, uh, your individualized things, and you associate a cost or a price point to every one of those products. It takes a little time to set it up, but my analogy is kind of like QuickBooks. Once you've got it set it up, there's not a lot of legwork to do. When price points change on products, you just jump in, change that price point, such as our fertilizer. And uh, all the costs that were associated prior to inputting, it doesn't change. So anything you've already done historically, whatever that price was of that product, stays the same. But as you get new inventory and you change your prices, it increases or decreases. Unfortunately, right now it increases uh, as you go along. So it's a just-in-time inventory structure. And uh, so it's all built there, creates the icons. They're associated with price points. And uh, then you can, as you do operations in a field, you create analysis. We want to look at a certain landlord's corn crop. We can put in analysis, all the operations, including all our business expenses that are hard to allocate. And uh, from there, we just look exactly what cost us to produce that bushel of corn, and it'll tell us down to the penny where our break-even level are, is and what our margins are. That's great, Scott. It sounds like this is definitely worth getting into as a farmer. And if they were wanting to get into it, what kind of cost would this set them back to use this app? Yeah, so our cost right now is $600 for six months. So it's a, uh, we we try to do it, it, it's in subscription and we do it semi-annual. It gives us some perspective of who's staying with us and not instead of an annual subscription. So it's right now $100 a month, and um, I don't care how many acres, how many users on your operation, it's unlimited. Um, our Kind of our promotional on that is once we reach our 100 users, we will uh, price increase, but the first 100 that have signed up with us, we're going to grandfather at that price point no matter what we end up doing with the program. And as I've stated, we've done 10 updates at this point. We're just keep improving it. But it does get to a point with data collection and everything. We will have to improve or increase our price. And uh, that is the plan down the road. So, Scott, I'm curious, before we let you go, there's a lot of other apps similar to yours out there on the marketplace right now. I feel like this space has really grown over the past couple of years. What makes Simple Farms different from some of those other input and you know risk management placking, tracking platforms that are out there? Most of the other platforms that exist that I'm aware of are corporately held and are integrated with other systems. And the biggest problem here is, is we're dealing with your financials. This program is looking in every aspect, even down to your interest expense, living expense, depreciation, everything's involved to really figure out where you're at. I don't want personally, to share my 
financials to anybody but my account and my banker. And our platform stands alone and all our competition does not. And your information's out there for them to use in other aspects. That's where we really stand alone. I think the other thing is, is we are absolutely the most simplistic program you can use. It is really a gamified aspect of tracking what you're doing. It's very quick to get the information. And the other thing is with us, you call us. You call me or my assistant, Julie, and uh, we'll answer your questions. We'll communicate with you and make the changes as our users desire. We're, we're available as farmers. That makes it probably the most unique of all the programs out there. And Scott, if anyone wants to get involved with this app, start using it on their own operation, where can they find you? How can they contact you to get started? Yeah, go to our webpage, simplefarms.ag, and uh, we're right there. Every way, which way to contact us and uh, reach out to us, and uh, we'll get back to you if we don't pick up right away, uh, either cell phone or, or emails. And uh, we help people get set up on it. I'm actually out in the machine now, and uh, you can reach me on the cell phone, and uh, I talk to producers all over the country about the program and different perspectives on it. Great. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you guys. I greatly appreciate it. And maybe we can do some more conversations. I'd love to do that. Another great segment for us to do each week, sharing our listeners the new latest and greatest in technology available potentially to help their farmer business. So any. Absolutely, Tanner. We'll be sharing more great ideas for your business this week. So be sure to stay tuned with us on social media as well as uh, hit subscribe if you haven't already done so. Tanner, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go.